So anyway, uh, a few disclaimers before we get started this morning on the sermon. Uh, if you were at Man to Man on Friday morning, a lot of this sermon is going to be review. Uh, I said some rather open-ended and potentially challenging or angering things on Friday morning at Man to Man. So if you were here, you'll notice that there, a lot of this sermon is similar. However, I'm planning on expounding upon what was a pretty rudimentary message uh, and bringing hopefully some needed clarification. But you'll find that a couple of the points are very similar and, or, or the same. And I, I just want to take a second to say, after a certain age, most of your life doesn't come to you as new information. It comes to you as a reminder. Because we have spiritual amnesia, right? You, you forget every day. I assume that many guys who came to Man to Man, I bet there are 150 or so guys that are going to be here this morning that came to Man to Man on Friday. And between Friday and this morning, about 48 hours, they forgot a lot. They forgot a lot of that stuff. Um, because I do, do, I do it every night I go to bed, and I, it's like I go to bed and I wake up and I forgot what I was thinking the night before or what, what the Lord was saturating in my mind. It's like when I, uh, it's like when you ever carry laundry, you know, like warm laundry is a great thing to carry out of the dryer, but whenever you walk, you, you always drop a sock, right, or a pair of underwear, and then you go to pick it up and you drop something else. That's just how our minds work. We're always forgetting things. And even if we could retain all of the knowledge, there's still a distinction between what we can say that we know and that stuff going all the way down to the bottom floor. And so, you man-to-man guys, I'll just say, try not to zone out, take it back in, because uh, I promise you the Lord has something for you. And then the second disclaimer I would give is this. There, there are some sermons that are kind of like, to use C.S. Lewis's analogy, they're kind of like God rearranging your furniture. It's like, it, they're challenging, but they're, you know, you're rearranging the furniture of your house, which it, it takes some exertion, but it's not that hard. But there are some sermons, and I think this is going to be one of them, potentially, at least for some of you, that feels more like God knocking down your walls, um, or taking your house off its foundation, or repouring your foundation. This, I assume, for many, is going to be a challenging sermon. Uh, I, I know that it, that was the case a couple mornings ago uh, because I'm going to be challenging some deep underlying cultural assumptions that we have that are the air we breathe and not necessarily all that conscious to us or things that we haven't necessarily taken the raw material of and put it on top of the scriptures and shaken it like this over a sieve to see what comes out. So, like I said, we have a certain cerebral theology. We have a certain quantity of stuff that we would say that we know but there's a big difference in all of our lives, all the time, between our cerebral theology and our functional theology. Our functional theology means taking those things that we say we know and applying them day in and day out in, in both the big picture decisions of our lives and the, and the kind of micro day-by-day, moment-by-moment decisions of our lives. So I'm going to give you some challenges this morning. They're not comprehensive. You can never say anything in a sermon. Uh, but usually a good sermon is going to help you to have some carry with you some challenges, some questions, and then take it. And because you have the scripture, since, you know, 1447 or so, since the Gutenberg printing press, we've had the Bible in printed form, right? And so you can look and examine the Bible, examine the scriptures like the Bereans in Acts 17. You can examine them to see whether the things I said are so. And you can talk to the people in your community group and say, is this true and how does this apply to my life? But I would encourage you to open your hands to the Lord today and say, Lord, what would you have for me? Because I'm willing to have my walls knocked down. That should be every week, every sermon. So I'm going to pray to that end, and then we're going to jump in. Father, we know that you are good, and you are sovereign. Uh, You have 
committed, you have covenanted with us, all who are your children, that you would do us good with all your heart and all your soul. You would cause us to fear your name. Uh, you would continue to do us good because you did not spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all. And so with him, you are going to graciously give us all things. And that includes some things that may be painfully challenging. So I pray that this morning, as you challenge our hearts and our minds, you would open our hands to you. Whatever things we harbor that we say, that's mine, you can't touch it. I pray that you would give, we would give you that as well. We have been bought with a price. We know that we are not our own. And I pray that this morning, we would, you would help us to believe that you are good for us and all that you would have us think and feel and do. I pray that you would hide me this morning and bring your word forth in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question I want to ask this morning is, what are your plans for the summer? What are your plans for the summer? Or why are you looking forward to the summer? Take five seconds. It's not going to be enough, but we don't have a lot of time this morning. Why are you looking forward to the summer? I want to look at a text from chapter 1 of Philippians that gives us a little insight into the mind and heart of the Apostle Paul and the things that he plans and the things that he looks forward to. He, he, he's going through this agonizing struggle. There we go. If you can read that, it's really small. I'll read it. If, it you can go old school and look at your Bible if you need to. Uh, that's what people used to do. Uh, so... In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is, is agonizing in his own heart about what is going to happen in his life. And as far as I can tell, these are two things that he's majorly looking forward to. And so we're gonna, I'm going to read you these things, this, this battle that he's going through, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. Starting in verse 21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Those are his two options. If I am to live in the flesh... I mean, stay alive on the earth. That means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I, shall, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul is basically presenting himself with two happy options. So happy are these two options that they're really making him fight in his own mind and heart. He's hard-pressed between the two. He's agonizingly fighting between these two options. And I'm going to take the second option first and then get to the first option that he presents. The second option is the to die is gain option, to depart and be with Christ option. So it would be life with Christ. If you take notes, you want to write something down, first, Paul's first option is life with Christ in his presence. And so he says, the, the thing that I'm looking forward to more than anything else is when I can be in the presence of Jesus. That's what I'm looking forward, more than, forward to more than anything else. In a manner of speaking, he's saying I'm looking forward to heaven, but I want to be clear that he doesn't say I could either be in heaven or I could do this other option. He's saying, I could be with Jesus, or I could do the other option. In other words, he, his concept of heaven is completely synonymous with being in the presence of Christ. Uh, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's the, well, in the original order, it was the third book of the Chronicles of Narnia. They're, the children are told they're going to leave Narnia, the Pevensey children, and Lucy, who's the most endearing of the four, 
starts weeping, as she is wont to do, and, and she says to Aslan, because they're about to leave, she said, it isn't Narnia, you know. It's you. It's you. We won't, we shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? And so what Lucy says in that moment is, Aslan, the Jesus figure, you are my treasure. You, to be with you, to relate to you, to be in your presence, that is the entirety of my heaven. That's what I want more than anything else. And so Paul is saying, life with Christ is far better. He, he, he misses Jesus. He's only had one, whatever that kind of encounter with Jesus was on, on the Damascus Road. That's the only encounter that I know of that he had with Jesus in some sort of material type presence. I guess it was more of a spiritual presence. But he still misses Jesus. Chris Rice has a song on the Past the Edges. Chris Rice is the guy that sings the cartoon song, but it's really not his best. Um, he's, he's a Christian artist who sings a song called Missing You. And the whole thing is just about Jesus having gone away and him longing for the day when he can be with Jesus. Because Jesus is his heart's treasure. And so his whole life, because of that, everything about Paul's life on the earth felt like an alien existence, right? He felt like a, a stranger or an exile on the earth. That's what you read when you read the scriptures. Uh, and so until he arrived at death or at the second coming, whichever one came first, he was going to be pining away after the presence of Christ. And what that means for us is when you think, I don't, I don't know that Paul was ever in a, in a situation where he thought, at least without this being a shadow, where he thought, I can't wait to get to this element of my summer because that will be a heaven of heavens to me. He was always a stranger on the earth. He was never home. And I've told you guys before, we have a family creed and one of the tenets of our family creed, the last one says, we are not home yet. And what that means is every day of our life, there should be some sense in us, some consciousness where we say, I'm not home yet. So if you have some vacation or some, some uh, I don't know, a new porch <laughs> that you can sit on this summer, whatever you have, you have to do the work for the sake of your own joy and for the sake of biblical accuracy, for real life to say, I'm not home yet. So every bit of your summer will only serve as a dim shadow, a dim shadow of what's to come. Because when Paul seemed to say, I'm either in heaven or I'm not in heaven. Those are, those are my two big categories. I'm with Jesus or I'm not. And I prefer to be with him. So everything else grew strangely dim in the light of that reality. So life with Christ was his first happy option. The second happy option, we're going to camp out a little bit more here, was life as Christ. Life as Christ. He says in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And that's a weird thing to say. To live is Christ. That could feel blasphemous. It could feel sacrilegious to... to in some way, equate yourself to Jesus. So you got to ask yourself, what does that mean? What does it mean to live is Christ, life as Christ? And Paul clarifies it, at least somewhat in the passage. So I just want to walk through kind of a progression of the way that Paul clarifies this in the passage. Uh, the first thing that he says about living as Christ, to live as Christ, is in verse 22, when he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So fruitful labor, whatever living as Christ means, it includes fruitful labor. And I would say there's a sense in which the Christian life, the whole thing is rest. It's rest. 
What I mean by that is if Jesus has finished the work on the cross on your behalf, if Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for you to be accepted and adopted into the family of Christ, then in your heart you have rest. That's why he says in Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You get rest. You get, you get initial rest and, and permanent rest when you are transferred into the dominion of Jesus. So there's an internal, an internal, that's a key word, an internal sense of rest in the Christian life. But there's another sense in which the entirety of the Christian life is labor. It's labor. The Bible is very, very clear that the clearest description, at least of the external life of the believer or the, or the day-to-day life of the believer, it is labor. We're working. We're toiling, Paul says in the passage Buster preached through last week in Colossians 1. We, we toil. We toil to the point of exhaustion or completion. That's the Greek word in Colossians 1.29. So the idea is fruitful labor. All of our work is labor. So in the world, there is external the aim is external rest, but there's internal turmoil, okay? So we're always, in the world, it's always, how can I figure out how to, how to have leisure? How can I figure out how to rest? But internally, I'm in turmoil because I always need more. But for the Christian, it's the opposite. For the Christian, we say, I am internally rested in Christ. And if I'm not rested, I'm trying to rest in Christ. But because of that, I can now give my life, my whole life, to labor, to laboring. And so we go a little bit further and ask, well, what kind of labor is this? Well, in verse 25, Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, that's the Philippian church, these believers, for your progress and joy in the faith. So now we have another clue as to what it means to live as Christ. Here we understand that their progress and joy in the faith is what Paul means when he's talking about labor. So it includes labor, and that labor is aiming at their progress and joy in the faith. In other words, this labor is not simply digging in the ground. And, and there's nothing wrong with you know, digging a ditch or whatever kind of labor you do at your job. But the labor that Paul is talking about that characterizes the Christian life is a relational labor. It's relational, and he's saying... I am aiming at the progress and joy of other people's faith. So it's relational and it's spiritual. I'm saying, I want this person to know Jesus. The entirety of my life is characterized by the labor, the exhausting labor of this person knowing Jesus. That's what it means. So when Paul says to live is Christ, he means I'm laboring in the lives of other people for their progress and joy in the faith. There's relational labor. So we go a step further. Over to chapter 2, verse 17, and we understand that he's laboring, and we understand that it's for their progress and joy in the faith, and that's what it means to live as Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service, or the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I want you to see again that Paul's glad. He's just happy. He's a happy laborer. This is not a begrudging thing for him. This is a great option, but what he's saying is, I am going to be poured out like a drink offering all the way out. The drink offering poured onto the altar on the sacrifice of your faith. I'm going to be poured all the way out. And so what I learn here is this labor, which is for their progress and joy in the faith, is a labor that makes you exhausted. It makes you spent. 
It makes you poured out. Paul says more clearly in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He's very clearly, I will most gladly, most gladly, here it is again, spend and be spent. I will be exhausted. I will be depleted for your souls. And so it's getting harder. Uh, this, this fruitful labor that is, is working the emotional and spiritual exhaustion in the lives of other people for their progress and joy, the thinking for other people, the praying for other people. And now it's going to be to such an extent that I am spent, that I am poured out. But we go a step further and it's going to get even harder. In chapter 3, Paul's talking about how the exchange that he makes between the credentials that he was fighting for and all of his personal moral merits, uh, the exchange that he's made in order to receive Christ and be found in him, right? And how that's just so much better that he would even treat that other stuff like dung, like trash. And in verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And you read that and you think, yeah, that, that sounds right. That sounds like what it means to be a Christian. I want Christ's righteousness and not mine. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that there's an agonizing component to that because you have to die to your own personal merit. But I think all of us in here who say we're believers, you would testify to that. But he keeps going and it gets tougher to stomach. He says, verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What? You lost me there after resurrection. He says... The power of his resurrection and what I want, what I, his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. May share his sufferings. So now he's, say, he's not saying this is just a, a cost of being a Christian. He's saying I want to know him. And one way that I know him is to share his sufferings. To be conformed to his death. I want that, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So when he says that, I don't really relate very well. I'm going to be honest with you. He says, I want to share, and Paul's very strange, right? He says, I want to share in his sufferings. And something about knowing the power of the resurrection of Christ involves sharing his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. So now we have suffering and dying. So when Paul says to live is Christ, he means I will be all the way poured out, even to the point of suffering, even to the point of dying, that I might know Christ and you might know Christ. So this is where the two options come together because he's saying if I can't be with him in his physical presence, I want to know him all the way. He's my treasure. And so I want to know what it is to live the way Jesus lived. I want to partake in the divine nature. I want to be poured out the way Jesus was poured out. And that's what it means to live as a Christian, is to be poured out the way Christians, or the way Jesus was poured out. And that kind of exhaustion, Paul calls joy. It's a joyful option. So I want to point out at this point that there is a glaring non-option 
It's not in, not in the text, okay? Paul's glaring non-option. He gave two options. He didn't give this third one. And the third one is life as leisure or life for himself and his own leisure. That's not one of the options. But we have a problem here because we live in a, an American culture where the, the value that underlies most things is something like, I work so that I can play. I work so that I can play. If I work this much, I'll be able to play this much. So work becomes a necessary evil that is only there as a means to the end of my personal leisure, of my personal rest, my own leisure. So we say, gather ye rosebuds while ye may in America. Whether we know it or not, the underlying philosophy in the United States is materialism and naturalism. And by materialism, I mean the philosophy, not just the love of money, which is, is an extension of materialism, but the philosophy that says the only things that are real are the matter that we see. That's all that is. It's just the, the material things that we see. And naturalism says there's no su- supernatural. There's nothing after this. It's just this. You become worm food after this. So gather ye rosebuds while ye may. And the way that looks in our, in our world, the macro value, the macro big picture value is the re- culture of retirement. And before you freak out, let me talk about that. Uh, the culture of retirement, because what we say is, I'm going to work really, really hard as a necessary evil so that I can retire as early as possible so that I can have as much leisure or my family can have as much leisure as I can on this earth. But that's not a Christian concept. That's an American concept. Beware of building your heaven on earth. This is not heaven. Remember, Paul is saying, I long to be with Jesus, and that's not here. David says in Psalm 63 that I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And even though this land is beautiful, we live in Charleston, South Carolina. MSN Travel and Leisure voted Charleston the number one best city in the world. Which I'm like, really? Uh, It's great. It's great. But it was like in front of Chiang Mai and Rome and places like that. And I'm like, wow. Somebody, Somebody from South Carolina made that list. But... But beware of building your heaven on earth. Beware of thinking that there is some stopping point. Buster always talks about this, about finishing well, that there's some stopping point shy of your death where you say, now it's time for me to rest. You have a rest that is laid up for you for all eternity, billions and billions of years of rest. So when you work, and this is just the macro value, when you work, Beware of thinking, it, thinking of it as just an, a means to the end of your leisure in this life. Your own leisure in this life. I have seen what that kind of value does when, when you just cut out on life at 55 or 60 or 65 and you just play. It causes dementia. Uh, my wife's family, my extended family, has been in Naples for years and years, the condo and all sorts of, uh, there, there are a number of different houses and condos, and it's basically the average age in Naples, including the high school there, is like 64. Like it's, it's, a, it's a retirement community. And dementia runs rampant there. And dementia doesn't just run rampant, I'm convinced, in Naples because people are getting old. And there are different, there, there are different genetic factors here, I understand that. So I'm just saying, I think one of the causes, I was actually sitting on a plane with a lady one time, 
and uh, I asked her about this, but one of the causes that I've come to understand about dementia is not just a lack of purpose, but a lack of relational purpose. A lack of a purpose where you are investing into someone else's life and thinking for them, relating to them, praying for them. And if you don't have that relational purpose in your 60s, 70s, 80s, then your mind degenerates because that's not what God has for you. So beware of building your heaven on earth. That's the macro value. Now we're going to zoom in a little bit. The micro value of this, the micro manifestation of this American value is basically the concept of everybody's working for the weekend. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the song from the 80s by Loverboy called Everybody's Working for the Weekend. You know that? Everybody's working for the weekend. You know song? Um, it's a jam. It's, it's a good song. But you, it's good to analyze the lyrics. And that song is a happy mantra of our culture. Everybody's working for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We say, say T-G-I-F. Thank God it's Friday. And because of that, we get ourselves into this weekly picture of that broader American value where say, if I can just trudge through my work week, I can make it to the weekend, and that's my Saturday. That's my Sunday. And I'm going to do what I do on Saturday and Sunday because I've earned the right to do it. I have earned the right to my leisure by working through the week. There are two major problems with that. The first is it makes you discontent Monday through Thursday. I just, I'm asking God to help me to get me to a place where I'm not really considering the days according to the cultural calendar so that there's no main difference in my contentment on Monday or on Saturday. There's no big difference there. I'm, I, I have an eternal inheritance. The Lord loves me. I'm a happy person. I'm free. I can give my life to people on Monday. And I can give my life to Saturday. And either way, I'll give my life to them on Saturday. And the work that God has given me to do, I'm asking him to make me happy with it. That's the micro. So beware working for the weekend. I mean, I, you know, I live in Bell Hall. It's, it's different um, from what I've known. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's the Truman Show. It's, it's kind of Pleasantville and... And every Saturday, everybody's yard bags are lined up. And, you know, we do the same thing sometimes. And there's a guy, I told the guys at Man to Man on Friday, there's a guy that lives in our general vicinity. And I'm not asking why he does this. But every morning, he gets up and he pulls his car. He's like four cars in his driveway. And he pulls them out and he parks them and he backs them back in. And he rearranges them. He just keeps doing it. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? And it's, it's just this weird thing it's I, I, there's some sort of I don't know if it's like the HOA is going to get mad at him or what um, the HOA gets mad at us but uh, but I think we, you just get to a place where you say now that I'm on the weekend it's my car it's my boat it's my amusement and I have earned the right to do this now you go even more micro okay we're gonna go one level more micro here and and this this one is the Lord has just been he's been knocking down my walls on this one that when you get home from a long day of work, even if it's a long day of relational labor, I am a professional Christian. My job is to invest into the lives of other people. And after a long day of work, I come home. I have four children. They are lively people. And, and I come home, and they are clamoring after my attention. And my wife is clamoring for me to give them attention so that she can breathe for a second. And in that moment, there is this lie in my mind that says, it's been a long day. I have earned the right to veg. 
I have earned the right to play little games with my friends on my phone. I have earned the right to check the scores. And so even when, and this is a horrible thing, but even when my kids are in the same room as I am, I still have this thought where I'm like, I'm going to kind of get in the corner of the couch and I'm going to veg. And what the lie that I'm believing there is that it's a richer life for me to veg right then than it is for me to engage in the joys and pains of my children. God is calling you to a rich life of relational exhaustion. And I'm not saying that there's never time for rest, and I'll get there in just a second. I am saying beware of the lie that you have earned the right to veg. As if any of the time is your time. So, that might sound hard, but there's a quote I shared Friday morning from uh, The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis says this about us. It's a convicting quote, but he says things well. He says, is this it? It's not going to matter. Y'all can't read it. Uh, he says, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. So just the the grandfather that sits on the porch and likes to spoil the kids and likes to see them running around and that's it. But that's not who God is. He, He calls God an artist who's making a masterpiece and you are his masterpiece. So he goes on to say, in the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love but for less. Which means if you're like, oh, I wish God wouldn't call me to this kind of relational pouring out. I wish God would just let me do my thing and have my leisure now. In that moment, what you would be saying is, God, would you love me less? I don't want you to love me like you know how to love me. Would you love me less? I want my life to simply be about leisure. I want to be able to earn the right to simply veg. I want some of my life to be my own. And God's saying, no, but I'm wiser than you and I love you. You're my child, and I promise you, if you would surrender yourself to this more arduous destiny, then your life and your eternity will be richer. It will be fuller. So, I can see the objections coming, so I'm going to ask a few of them. What do we do with our rest? What do we do with our leisure? Are you telling us we never have leisure again? What do we do with the beauty of summer? It's, it's beautiful, Right? trees and beach and marsh and the fish are biting. I took my son Eli, my dad took Eli and myself fishing the other morning and we caught uh, about a dozen redfish and Eli was catching them and we have a video and it's just making memories, you know. It's, it's wonderful. It's like, do I got to quit that? What do I do? What do we do with more time on our hands? We'll say we're a student or a teacher. What do we do with more time on our hands? What do we do with the kids who are out of school? Are you telling me never to rest again? Are you telling me not to retire? I want to answer with a few clarifications, okay? Number one, as Christians, we rest in order to fuel ourselves for more labor. So in the world, they labor in order to garner for themselves, to procure for themselves as much rest as they can have. But we as Christians, in this life, which is characterized by labor in the lives of other people, in this life, when we rest, we rest in order to fuel ourselves for more labor. We work while it is day. We don't sleep now. We work now. But when we sleep, we are sleeping so that we can work more now. In this life. And then in our heavenly rest, we'll never run out of energy. 
And even in that, so I'm not saying never take a vacation, for example. I'm saying know why you take a vacation. Live your life on purpose. Craig Harris, you all know Craig, he, he's the indefatigable person who sits outside and welcomes you all the time. Uh, and he and his wife, Rafia, are there at their 30th wedding anniversary and they're taking a cruise. Now, I know Craig and Rafia, and they're not saying we've been married 30 years, we earned it. We earned our cruise. But I also know Craig, and I know him to be a laborer who is constantly pouring himself out in the lives of people. And so the risk of doing that constantly without observing some of these rest or sabbatical type of principles is that you burn out. You can't do it anymore. Craig is, Craig is like Buster, not a superhero. He's a jar of clay too, and so he needs these times. But what I would say, and I told Craig this, if he's on the pool deck on whatever giant ship they're on out in the middle of the Caribbean, resting during his cruise, and there's somebody lying next to him, let's say they're a secularist from Europe, let's say they're from Romania, okay, and he gets to talking to them, or, or Rafia gets to talking to them, and, and it's clear that they don't know Jesus, which is most of the people in Eastern Europe, and they're on their way to an eternity of condemnation, and they feel in their hearts harassed and helpless without hope, without God in the world. Craig does not say, hey, I'm on vacation. Because Jesus is working. His Father is working. And we in this life are working. We live in an urgent world fighting for the souls of people. This life is labor. So I'm not saying don't rest. I'm saying know that you rest in order to fuel more labor in the lives of people. That's clarification number one. Clarification number two. We need to define labor again and again. Paul's fruitful labor, as I said before, is relational in nature. It's for the joy and progress in the faith of other people. So the enemy, just be clear, the enemy is not enjoyment. I'm not saying what you need to do for the rest of your life is find the hardest possible activity to do and do it. You know, like go take a sledgehammer and just hammer a wall as many times as you can. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there is a certain amount of labor or toil or intentionality involved in thinking for somebody else and giving your life and your time to them and maybe being a little more physically tired than you would have been before. I think in general Christians are going to be a little more physically tired than everybody else. And that's okay. I'm not telling you to sleep four and a half hours a night. I'm telling you to sleep what you should sleep. I'm just saying we engage. We're engaging people constantly for their joy and progress in the faith. So the enemy is not enjoyment or even what would be defined as leisure. The, we live in the context of a beautiful world. We happen to live in Charleston, South Carolina, which is apparently an unbelievable city, right? And so there are great, there's great cuisine, there's great uh, geography or whatever you call it, topography. You know, we have wetlands, which I love the wetlands, and we have the beach and all this. And so you are engaging people in the midst of a beautiful world, potentially doing things that would be considered leisure, but the enemy is not the leisure or the enjoyment. The enemy is your self-centeredness and mine. Where we got to a place where we say, I just want to relax instead of living your life on purpose. And I'm going to invest myself into other people. And so when I consider whatever enjoyable thing I might do about, around Charleston, I'm considering the people around me that I might invest into their joy and their progress in the faith. The enemy is not enjoyment. It's not leisure. It's self-centeredness. Number three. Retirement isn't the problem, quitting on life is. Retirement isn't the problem, quitting on life is. So you might be asking me the question, so are you telling me I shouldn't buy a beach house or a lake house or I shouldn't go up to the lake every weekend this summer because that's what I was planning on doing. 
uh, or should I not buy a yacht? I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe. I'm saying you should not do any of those things thoughtlessly. You should not do any of those things with your eyes closed just going the way of the culture. Because you have this one little life, a life that is labor. And so what I would ask you is, why are you buying a beach house? Why are you buying a lake house? Why are you going up there every weekend? It may be that you should not go up to your lake house every week, every weekend this summer. It may be that. I'm just asking, what are you doing with your life to invest into people? I can't quantify it for you. I can't tell you exactly. I can say, get on your face or your knees if your face hurts and, and ask the Lord, why am I doing this? And why do you want me to do it? And this is where I say, this could be a reorienting of your whole life. He's been knocking down the walls, right? And it's hard here. It's harder to live radically here than it is to be in some, you know, sub-Saharan Africa in a village where you know what you're doing. It's hard to be a radical in Charleston, South Carolina. So you, you have to beg and ask people around you. The problem is not retirement. It's quitting on life. And I know people in this church that are very much retirement age, and they're going. They just have not quit. In fact, when they get to retirement age, I, I've heard two people, in the, my, well, my dad and my stepmom, in the last two days have said, um, after retirement, I can actually give myself to the fruitful labor that Paul's talking about more than I could before. But they're not quitting on life. They're jumping in more. My old pastor, John Piper, used to say, uh, the beauty of being a senior citizen is that when you go overseas to the mission field, you get discount fares. And, and people joke, and he said, and I really mean it. That's what he said. I mean it. Like, get the discount. Go. Go. You got a minute. You got a minute before you die. Go. Right? That's number three. So we're finished this way. Why is this better? Like, why would Paul choose it? He's saying I could depart and be with Christ. He's not contemplating suicide, clearly. He's not going to kill himself. But there's, Paul's a pretty unique individual. And he's saying... I could go and be with Christ, or I could keep doing this. I could keep investing in your life. And I'm going to choose this one instead of depart and be with Christ, even though he said this is very much better. So how, in this, how is this one better? Because there's some sense in which it's better. He would not have chosen it. And I'm just going to finish with two reasons. Number one, it was better because Paul's eternity was already taken care of. When he says in verse 23... My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He's not saying, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. He's saying, I know I'm going to be with Jesus. The reason I know I'm going to be with Jesus is because Jesus has already covered me with his blood. I'm already in union with Jesus Christ. I've already died and been hidden with him. I've been buried with him and baptized with him and resurrected with him in new life. So I'm safe in this world. Therefore, this world has nothing for me. I'm not a squirrel trying to get a nut. I'm not looking around in the, in the shopping market of the world consuming things anymore because I just need to have those things. I'm taken care of. I'm free in this world. My eternity is taken care of. And therefore, because my eternity is taken care of, number two, he decides to stay with them because his eternal joy will be redoubled. His eternal joy will be redoubled or completed. He says in verse 26... 
if I stay with you for your progress and joy in the faith, verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So what he's saying is if you glory in Christ Jesus and I get to participate in that, then when we get to heaven, this is what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, you are our glory and our joy. When we get to heaven, I'm not only going to have the joy that I just talked about of being with Jesus, my treasure, the, the sun to every sunbeam, the substance to every shadow. Not only do I get to be with him, but you get to be with him. And when I see you worshiping him, when Mackenzie sees Karina worshiping him in heaven forever, Mackenzie doesn't just get a singular joy of herself. She gets, she gets Karina's joy too. Because she got to participate in that. And what I'm saying is that life is better. That life is better than a life that is given to your leisure. It's richer. It's more exhausting, yes, but it's the good kind of exhausting. It's real life. It is the arduous destiny that Christ has called you to. And it's better. And it's eternally better. So Paul chose it because he said, I want double joy in heaven. Therefore, I don't think that Paul ever said, oh, we're coming up to summer, so I'm just going to turn things off. We've been talking as pastors about how to think about summer and how we motivate people towards summer because things just kind of die during the summer. And I, don't, I just don't think Paul had a category for it. He might have said, oh, there's, there's beauty in the summer and there's beauty in the autumn, there's beauty in the winter and there's beauty in the spring. There's probably some poem like that. But I don't think he thought it's summer, it's playtime. He thought it's summer. What a great opportunity to labor in the lives of my people, my friends around me who are now more available than they were during the year. So a couple of applications. Number one, on, the, on a micro, micro level, our staff team, this, these two weeks, are doing a smartphone detox, okay? Social media, if, if that's your thing, depending on the generation, usually. Social media, apps on the phone, the whole thing, that we might invest relationally more, okay? So instead of just getting in our little corner and doing our little thing, we're, we're, we're doing a smartphone detox. You might want to check it out. Tony Rinke uh, from Desiring God just wrote a book. It's called 12 Ways Your Smartphone is Changing You. You might want to check it out. That's practical application number one. And number two, and this is the one I would want you to take with you, is just this. Step outside of your door some, someday soon. Look to your right, look to your left, look across the street. Maybe I'll look at, you know, guy pulling his car out and back in. And when you see your neighbor, instead of just going, hey, see ya, I see you, we acknowledge each other, you walk over to their yard. Because they're outside. And you're, to, you're next to each other all day, every day, right? You just don't acknowledge that you're 30 feet away from them. And you walk over and you say, if you've never met them, you say, hi, my name is Mortimer, or whatever your name is. And then they respond with their name, hopefully, if they have any sort of social skill. And then at that point, you talk to them and you establish a next step. You establish a next step, whether it's them coming into your house for dinner, whether it's Maybe you find a commonality that they like to do some of the activity, walk around the neighborhood, and you like to do that. Maybe you have kids that are the same age, and they both do gymnastics or something, but you establish a next step. And I need to do this, okay? Because I'm in campus ministry, and I don't always think about my neighbors very well, because I turn off, because I'm wrong. And, and you talk to them, and then the next day, when you wake up, you don't just think, thank you, Lord, for my life. You think, thank you, Lord, for the life you've given me, and the freedom I have in the gospel of Christ, and then you pray for that person. And whatever their joy in the progress, joy and progress in the faith might look like. Okay? That might sound daunting. 
It might sound really daunting. But the great comfort of being a Christian is that we're covered in mercy all the time. Like, right now, all of us are standing on probably a hundred cultural assumptions that have caused practices in our lives that are not good. And the reason that we're going to heaven is not because we've arranged all of those priorities correctly. The reason we're going to heaven is because we have a perfect substitute in Jesus Christ who never thought wrong, acted wrong, did wrong, any of it. Never felt wrong. And because we have that substitute, and because he died for us, the wrath of God is taken away so that you can breathe. And then you don't just say, well, I can breathe. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You say, I want to live. I want to live. I want to partake in the divine nature. And because I'm free, I'm going to go live. I'm going to go invest in other people's joy and progress in the faith because clearly that's more, what it's, more of what it's like to be in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that you are very, very merciful. You're merciful to me in my selfishness. You're merciful to me in my unbelief when I think that having my own life and living my life for my own leisure is a better thing than whatever you have for me, the arduous destiny of joyful investment and exhaustion that you have for me. I thank you that you're that merciful. I thank you that you will continue to be merciful. I thank you that there's coming a day when you will pour out the riches of your kindness toward us because of your grace in Christ Jesus. And I pray that more people, because we got to participate in their lives, more people would be with us forever in heaven. Now I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.